Blessed are Yadonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Yadonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are Yadonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Now let's turn to the Megillah of Ruth and read our portion today of the, the Megillah as we've been working our way, as I've said, through this Megillah and finding what God would have us to see in this important uh, commandment. Thank you very much, this important work of Scripture. The Megillah blessing, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Olam. Asher kidshanu b'mitzvata v'tzivano amikra megila. Blessed are Yeronai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us regarding the reading of the Megillah. Turning in our Megillah to Ruth chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Ruth, Ruth chapter 3 and beginning in verse 7. We'll be reading verses 7 through 14 today and highlighting them. So it says, Boaz ate and drank, and his heart was merry, and he went to lie down at the end of the grain pile. And she came stealthily, that's Ruth, uncovered his feet and lay down. So just to backtrack this slightly, Naomi was hoping during these three months of the harvest that Boaz might make a move, so to speak, and maybe tried to marry Ruth. Um, but, as we said last week, Boaz, even though he's a great man, he's a wise man, he's a wealthy man, he's a righteous man, he doesn't really think himself worthy of Ruth. And one of the possibilities is, is he's the, uh, what did we say last week, an octogarian. <laughs> he is 80 years old and she is 40 years old. So he's thinking that the age difference is going to be a problem. And so he decides not to make a move. So Naomi puts Ruth in a position in which to determine whether or not she is going to end up being the mother of Mashiach because Naomi perceives that there is more to this story than just her family being redeemed, but rather she is envisioning the redemption ultimately of the entire Jewish people and ultimately the entire world. So this is what's going on here. It says, In the middle of the night, the man was startled and turned about, and there was a woman lying at his feet. You can imagine. Why, first of all, why is he laying by the grain to begin with? He's laying by the grain. I'm glad you asked. He's laying by the grain because he's concerned that people will steal the grain. It's, it's, so it's, it's, a, it's a concern of theft because back then, Grain was like money. The question becomes, why such a wealthy person who surely has many servants? We know that from the story because he rides out and his servants greet him, Shalom Aleichem. And, they, and he responds, Aleichem Shalom. So why doesn't he have one of his servants? And the answer is, is that Boaz is such a righteous person that it was customary in those days and remember that these are the days we started the story where the judges were judged. This was not, it was somewhat of a lawless time. 
<clears throat> so he was concerned because it was customary in that time for men to pay harlots with grain. And he was concerned that maybe if one of his servants might be tempted and perhaps engage in that activity, and uh, which the activity itself would be problematic, but the bigger problem would be that some of his grain would have been defiled by using it for an impure purpose. So he decided that he would guard it himself. And you can imagine his dismay when this is all in his heart and he wakes up and there's a woman at his feet. Now you see what's going on. Now you put the little pieces together. I mean, it's one thing to wake up and there's a woman at your feet. That's startling enough. But now he's wondering what's going on. We're going to figure out why that's such a big issue in just a second. But verse 9, it says, Who are you? He asked. And she answered, I am your handmaid, Ruth. Spread your robe over your handmaid, for you are a redeemer. And he said, Be blessed of Adonai, my daughter. You have made your latest act of kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after the younger men, be they poor or rich. The sages point out that evidently it was customary or common or natural for women to go for the younger man versus the older guy with money. So he's praising her for the fact that she would, because when she said, spread your garment over me, what she was, that was a proposal. Because to spread the garment, the sages point out, is to spread the tallit over her like a chuppah. So she was asking him to spread his tallit over her in matrimony. Now the reason that she's asking is because he hasn't asked yet. Some of the men just got real nervous all of a sudden here. Yeet kadave, yeet So she says, uh, spread your, your tallit over me. And he says, your latest act of kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after the younger men, be they poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Whatever you say, I will do for you. For all the men in the gate of my people know that you are a worthy woman. Now, while it is true that I am a redeemer, there is also another redeemer closer than I. Stay the night, then in the morning... If he will redeem you, fine. But if not, if he does not want to redeem you, then I will redeem you. Chai Hashem, lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, and she arose before one man could recognize another. For he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He didn't want there to be any, any Lashon Hara. And, and, and so this story continues next week. But we're going to focus on these verses. Verse 8 where it says, and it came to pass at midnight that the man was startled and turned about and behold a woman was lying at his feet. This is the middle of the, of the story. This is the exact middle of the story. As indicated by the fact that it's midnight. And midnight is actually a halakhically holy hour. That it's customary, it has been customary for the sages to arise at midnight and read or pray or study because it was believed, and we'll find out why, 
that that was a, a particular time when the windows of heaven were open. And so Mayam Loez brings down an insight. He says, The beginning of this verse marks the middle of the book of Ruth, symbolic of the fact that the epic events it records transpire in the middle of the night. The expression, it came to pass at midnight, is found three times in the scriptures. First time is in Exodus 12, 29, where it says, It came to pass at midnight that Hashem smote every firstborn in Egypt. The second time is Samson arose at midnight, seized the doors of the gate of the city in Judges 16, 3. And then it says, the third time, it came to pass at midnight that a man was startled and turned about. So those are the three times it says at midnight in Scripture. Common, Mayam Loez writes, common to all three instances is that in each instance it began the onset of redemption, freedom. So midnight became a time for prayers to be answered. So we see that when, when, when God wanted to deliver us from Egypt, he smote the firstborn at midnight. That was the beginning of our exodus. When Samson lifted up the gate and began to fight against the Philistines, that was the beginning of the redemption of Israel from the bondage, as it were, of the Philistines. And then when Ruth laid down at the feet of Boaz, that was the beginning of what would become the marriage that would lead to the lineage of David, which would lead to the Mashiach, which would lead to the redemption of the world. And according to the Talmud, according to one opinion anyway, each of these three events occurred actually at Passover. Which is why the sages said, likewise the future redemption will also occur on Passover at midnight. Which has the same numer numerical value as 190, as the word in Hebrew, kof, zadi, sofit, kotz, that is end. The term designating the end of days or the messianic era. Perhaps this is what Paul meant when he said, the Messiah is the end. Not the end of the Torah. People said that the, the people have translated that he's the end of the law. That would be contrary to Scripture. That would be heretical. That would be blasphemous. That would be illogical. It doesn't work in any framework biblically for the Messiah to have done away with the, the, God's law. God's law the Torah, the law of Moses, the word of God, the scriptures of God, the will of God, the wisdom of God, holy writ, as all, they're all synonymous terms. So if you happen to be, if you're listening to me, you're tuning in for the first time, you're wondering what's going on here. If you happen to be of the mindset that doing away with the law of God is a good thing, what you've just said is that this, the scriptures have been done away with. Which if that's true, then what are we studying? Think about it. This is why logic is so important so not used in theological studies, but if, you, if what you're studying in order to prove your point only serves to prove that what you're studying has been abolished, then how is it you're able to study it to prove your point? Has anybody seen Back to the Future? I mean, come on. If we're going to nullify, cancel, abrogate, give away with God's Holy Scripture, then how can we use it to validate our point? Is it already gone? That's awkward. <laughs> we want it to be everlasting if we like it. But it says here the numerical value of this is, is 190, which is the same as end. At midnight is the end. So when Mashiach was taken in the garden and eventually crucified, that was the end. Meaning, not the end of the Torah, Hatzvei Shalom, but the end, meaning that that was the beginning of the Messianic days. Because, listen, okay, ooh, that was good. You missed it. 
<clears throat> it flew past you like my shield. <laughs> the end is the beginning. At midnight is the end. But remember, at midnight is the beginning of the redemption. So the end is the beginning. This is why every time we start the Torah portions over, remember what we do. We read about the death of Moses, and immediately that same day, we read in the beginning. Why? Because the end is only the beginning. That's good. I don't care if you say so or not. Amen. I want to share something here from the Midrash Rabbah. Midrash Rabbah, pardon my Naomi, don't say anything. <laughs> we have in Midrash Rabbah, Ruth 6.1, page 56.3, if you happen to have the Midrash. It says, the man was startled and he gripped, and, and he was gripped. And behold, there was a woman lying at his feet. Interesting way, because the word uh, used there that, that Ruth gripped Boaz. It says uh, here that the, this word teaches that Ruth gripped Boaz as a Hazizus grips a person. Like Hazizus is like a skin disease. But so when he, when he woke up and was startled, what Ruth did is she gripped his feet. She... She'd put him in a, in, a, in a headlock or something, a footlock. It says, Boaz. <laughs> That's funny. Now, I love this Midrash because this, so, this is so awesome. Because you've got you to love Boaz. Boaz is just a humble, holy man. He's 80. You've got to figure, though, he probably looks good for 80. I'm just saying. But anyway, that's beside the point. I totally make that up. I have no idea. <laughs> but he's a holy man, and he's just so humble. And he's, he's, he's guarding his grain because he didn't want, you know, it's not that he doesn't trust his servants, but he knows, look, men are men. He's concerned. They might be gripped themselves with temptation and use his grain for unholy, pur unholy purposes, which would, you, I want you, you see the pattern there? You take a little bit of your grain and use it for an impure purpose, and in his mind, it kind of messes up the rest of the grain, right? So if you take your tithe and use it for a holy purpose, then what does that do? You see? So anyway, Boaz began examining her hair, and he said, demons do not have hair. <laughs> so he thought she was a demon. Somebody asked me recently, do Jews believe in demons? Well, the Midrash says he thought she was a demon. And now, there's a, there's a point in here, or a, a, and I don't, remember, I don't know if it's right here. We may read it in a second. I don't re remember if it's in this particular segment, where he actually touches her hair. And then he feels bad later because he realized it's a real woman, and he would have never touched her hair, but he thought it was a demon, so he was actually touching to make sure it was real hair. Wow. So he's, he's just in a hot mess right here. He said, demons do not have hair. He asked her, who are you, a demon or a woman? She answered, a woman. He then asked, are you married or unmarried? She said, unmarried. And finally he said, are you impure or pure? She replied, pure. Thus does our verse state, and behold, there was a woman, meaning one purer than all women, lying at his feet. Ma'am Loez, so he wakes up and he's thinking, this is a demon. 
who has come. And no, it's not a demon. It's actually an angel. Ma'am Loez has a statement here about um, this entire incident as it relates. I, I'm relating it back to Messiah's parable about the hidden treasure and the, and the pearl of great price. But let's read what Ma'am Loez writes about this incident. He's going actually back to verse 4 where Naomi has this entire scheme of sending Ruth to begin with. And this is what he says. He says, Our sages teach God has been engaged in creating the light of the Messiah since the beginning of the world. An early instance of God creating the light of Messiah, quote-unquote, the reason it's in quotes is because the light of Messiah is that eternal light of Torah. So when it says creating, it doesn't mean literal, but rather it means bringing it forth. As it says in the book of Proverbs, the Torah is speaking. It says, he brought me forth as the first of his works. It didn't say he created me, because the Torah is God. That's another reason why you can't get rid of it, which is another reason why people want to. No, listen to me. You've got to ask people, don't ask people, but you've got to think about it like what's in their minds. Why do people want to nullify God's word? Because ultimately, and most people don't realize this, because it's so deep in their subconscious. They want to nullify God. Because the reality is, and in our rebellion, we do not like being told what to do, even when it's God. So in order to get rid of God, the best thing we do is get rid of his word, because if there's no word, there can be no God. Because a God that does not command is no God at all. How can you be Lord to somebody who has no commands for your life? And you say, well, God has commands for our life. He wants me to be a good person. He wants me not to murder people, not to steal from them, be morally good. So he's not concerned about your body. He's not concerned about your everyday life. He doesn't care what you eat. What kind of parent is that? What kind of parent would you be if you cared about your child's education, but you gave no care whatsoever about their physical condition? Right? They came to arrest you because you weren't feeding them. I sent them to school. That's going to be okay with the law enforcement? You know, we realize you're not feeding your child, but you do send them to school, therefore we're going to let you off this time. No, they'll crucify you. And have fun doing it. That went over well. Anyway, it says here, <laughs> an early instance of God creating the light of the world was when he sent an angel to rescue Lot and his two daughters from the destruction of Sodom. In the cave where they took refuge, the daughters plied with Lot with wine, they plied Lot with wine that providence provided. You ever think about that? Where they get the wine? They left in such haste, they pack a lunch, take the wine cooler with them. <laughs> but it says here, according to Ma'am Loez, that providence provided the wine. It's all part of God's plan. And they consorted with him so that we may give life to offspring through our father, Genesis 19.32. The result, the nations of Moab and Ammon 
who bore within them messianic sparks waiting to enter Israel through two pearls of these nations. Naomi's plan, he writes, was the hint of the deed of Lot's daughters and bring Boaz to the recognition that Ruth was the long-awaited pearl of Moab. She was the long-awaited pearl of Moab. Now, I want to read, if I can, from the book of Matthew, chapter 13. The book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, verses, uh, beginning in verse 44. It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a treasure that a man found stashed in a field. He stashed it again, then joyfully went and sold everything he had bought, and that he had, rather, and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a trader seeking good pearls. When he found a very precious pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, I've said before that when people read that, those two parables, they immediately believe, and, and oftentimes it's taught, in fact, I would, I would venture to say every time it's taught that the kingdom of God there, when it talks about the kingdom of God is like a field with a treasure or a precious pearl, that the treasure or the precious pearl is the gospel. And it's been taught that when somebody finds the gospel, they sell everything they have in order to acquire it. That is not the meaning of the parable. The meaning of the parable is that you are the treasure, that you are the pearl, and that heaven is willing to sell everything in order to buy you. And we know that through looking at similar stories in Jewish literature, such as this one, where Boaz recognizes that Ruth is that pearl. She is that pearl of great price that it was hidden in Moab. By the way, where do you find pearls? Oysters, which the Bible refers to as an abomination. Not allowed to have oysters. Not allowed to eat oysters. The Bible calls oysters and the like shellfish abomination. But yet a pearl is found in the middle of abomination. And when... The Redeemer, Boaz, recognized that the pearl was in the abomination. He redeemed her. And that's what Messiah is saying. That I came and I found that precious treasure. I found that pearl of great price. Which means what? There was lots of other pearls. So if you're sitting in this room, you're the, or watching online, you're the pearl of great price. And so this is what Boaz was saying. It says again, God was engaged in creating the light of Messiah when Tamar, dressed as a harlot, lured Judah off the path and bore him parrots. Another link in the chain leading to David and the Messiah. Naomi chose to follow in her footsteps as hinted by the end letters of this phrase in this verse, et hamakomasher. Et hamakomasher, the end letters are tav, mem, resh, which spell Tamar. And so Boaz, or excuse me, Naomi, was thinking that Tamar lured Judah. And by the way, the sages teach that Judah, being a righteous man, was going to pass her by. 
But God sent an angel to stir up the spirit of lust in him. Now you think, why would God do that? We're going to learn here in a second. In fact, here it is right here. This is actually something I meant to share last week because it, it went right with the portion, a tour portion of Kari Mot, but I just didn't get to it. It was left behind. It says, esoterically, Naomi's actions were also a means to foil Satan, so to speak, similar to Israel appeasing Satan, cursed be he, on Yom Kippur by sending the Azazel to his destruction. Thus, Jacob produced the 12 tribes by marrying two sisters, which Torah law forbids. Judah begot Peretz through an unconventional terrorist with Tamar, and Ruth went to Boaz of the threshing floor, all to appease Hasatan, cursed be he, and foil his mission of preventing God's light from being brought into the world. What's, what's being said here? As the sages point out, <clears throat> that when we send the Azazel goat, the goat that's the goat we, we pronounce our sins over, and send them out to the wilderness, Hasatan now, cursed be he, is going to be focused on that goat and thereby distracted from what's going on in the temple to bring atonement. See, Hasatan, cursed be he, is, a, is not an all-seeing, all-knowing being. And so Hashem throws him a little faint. The, re, the sages refer to it as appeasement. See, Hasatan Crispy, he was appeased when he saw that lust was, up, was conjured up in Judah. He was, he was appeased by that and thereby, thereby distracted by it. He thought he was getting the upper hand. And God was saying, nope, I'm just using that lust, that evil inclination of lust, in order to turn him towards the woman of righteousness, Tamar, in order to bring, back, bring about the ancestor of Mashiach. I'm using you, Hasatan, to fulfill my purpose in the world. And so this is what happened when he sent, sent um, Ruth to the threshing floor. This is why when Boaz woke up, he thought, is this a demon? Because he's thinking, this is something the devil would do. And the devil is like, aha, I have promiscuity going on here. I have the righteous Boaz now with the righteous Ruth, and they're in a very unrighteous situation. And he even touched her hair, and we all know what that's about, and all this kind of stuff. And then, and then Hasatan, or, 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 Hashem, is saying, yeah, yeah, you keep thinking that, but I'm causing all of this in order to distract you so I can bring about the Mashiach. Amen. And this is what happened in, in, with Mashiach, of course. He thought he was getting the upper hand when he was watching them mock the Messiah. He thought he was getting the upper hand when they, when they were putting him on the execution stake. They, they thought he was getting the upper hand when they were making fun of him while he was up there. Little did he know, he's been distracted with all that nonsense, little did he know that his end was at hand, and our beginning was just dawning. This is what was going on in this area. Now I want to connect this story, because we just, we read about the pearl of great price, but I want to connect this to another comment by Mael Moez in chapter, in a, on page 101 here. He says, my mother-in-law, she continued, this is when Ruth is telling Boaz about the land and what have you. My mother-in-law and I, she continued, are forced to sell our inheritance, the field of my late husband, Maklon. Excuse me. 
and it's incumbent upon you to buy it as it is written. The Redeemer who is related next upon you to buy it as it is written, to, to him shall come and redeem that which his brother had sold. From Leviticus 25, 25. And acquire me then along with the field, so that the name Machlon will be remembered when I go to the field and people say, this is Machlon's wife. And she mentioned her mother-in-law because the law of redemption did not actually apply to her because she was a convert. Nonetheless, it was customary that if a man died without children, one of his relatives should marry the widow to produce offspring for the deceased. Thus, the scripture says below, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased, you have also bought Ruth. So again, she was that treasure in the field. He was willing to buy the field because of her. He didn't need more land. But she says, if you buy the field, it's incumbent upon you to do it because you're a redeemer. But just know if you buy the field, you buy me. Which is going all the way back to Yeshua's parable and said that well, I found the treasure in the field, so I sold all I had to buy the field. Why? Because I wanted the treasure. Boaz wanted Ruth, not because she was a beautiful woman, not because she was 40 years his younger, but because she was a righteous woman and he perceived that she was the pearl of Moab from whom Mashiach would come. That's what he was looking for. Ma'am Loez also says, in connection, this is a, a bit of a connection to our Parashah Kedoshim. I, I'm always fascinated how the Parashah and the Megillah just can, seem to connect when we're going through them here. In Parashah Kedoshim, if you recall reading it, there was a number of forbidden relationships. And then in the latter half, the last chapter of the Parashah, it's the the punishment for those forbidden relationships. And by the way, homosexuality is forbidden. I know we're very confused by that nowadays. It is a sin. God is not okay with it at all. Okay? You cannot have a homosexual church. You can't have a homosexual synagogue. You cannot be a homosexual rabbi. I just, no, I, I want to be clear because we seem to be confused. You know why we're confused? Because we like to erase God's word. See, when you erase the kosher laws, you're like, oh, that's cool. But eventually, you'll erase other laws too. If you like to erase the laws about celebrating God's festivals, you think, I like it because I like the other ones. They're more fun. And then you'll end up erasing the other ones. You know, there was a, I don't know what the whole saying was. But in Germany, they talked about it. They said when they came, when they came for the Jews, everybody was fine. And then when they came for the for the gypsies, that's fine. And then when they came for the people who were uh, severely disabled, okay, whatever. But then they started coming for uh, them. This is what happens when you start erasing God's laws. But it says, Boaz always rose at midnight for worship and Torah study, following a tradition of his father's that was subsequently also handed down to his descendant David. And thus it says, David says in Psalm 119, at midnight I rise to thank you for your statutes of righteousness. But this particular midnight, Boaz arose to face a great test. Now I want you to think about something. He woke up, we read that he woke up suddenly. He was startled when he woke up. But he was trying to wake up so that he could study Torah. 
so he could pray. Right? It's a great, this is a great lesson here, pardon me. It's a great lesson. Because in our life, when we're trying to live for God, when we're trying to study Torah, when we're trying to be obedient, when we're trying to be holy, and remember, holy doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you're separated. Like Mikhail said, that's holy is when you run into the rocks, get out of the river and walk to the, where there's water. Water is symbolic of Torah, by the way. And jump in the Torah again. So Boaz wakes up. He's a righteous man. He's a holy man. We've talked about how awesome Boaz is. And he wakes up to study Torah, a righteous task. And now he's got a gorgeous woman laying at his feet, holding on to his feet. This is what happens. It's a great test. See, he found himself overwhelmed by desire because the word for seized can also mean desire. It meant to say she seized him, but a way it could be read is desire seized him, which he did not know if he could master. The greater the man or the woman, the greater the test. It says the possibility of sinning so frightened him that his flesh turned soft as relish. And instinctively, now this is where training comes in. Instinctively, he held his head with his hands as one does when terror-stricken. Another interp- interpretation is that he tried to scream, but she held on to him so tight that he was able to regain his composure. By focusing on thought that at this very moment at midnight, God enters the Garden of Eden with the righteous He succeeded in overpowering his evil inclination. Thereby, he joined the ranks of the righteous Joseph, who refused the advances of his master's wife and of Patliel, the son of Lahish, who placed a dagger between himself and Michael, the daughter of Saul, who had previously been betrothed to David. In another instance, it talks about the fact that he rolled over and lay on his face and just interceded for several minutes because he was overcome with that desire. And we are going to be faced in our lives with temptations and desires, and they vary. They vary. They can be something that seems obvious like this, or it can be some other type of addiction. An addiction, by the way, could be anything. You know, you can be addicted to food. You can be addicted to alcohol. You can be addicted to uh, anything, TV, different types of things. And the way that we overcome that is we have to get into intercession. We have to get into prayer. We have to fight it. We have to fight it. This is why the scripture says, if you think you, if you, think you can't fall, beware because you can fall. We have to always understand that there's somebody that can knock us down spiritually. There's somebody out there that can, can knock us down. So Boaz remained steadfast. And Midrash, transitioning now to Midrash Rabbah Ruth 6.4. Let's find this little, this little section here. Aha. He remained steadfast in his determination. It says, as it is written, 
A wise man remains steadfast. The word for steadfast is baoz. Bait, ayin, vav, zion, from Proverbs 24.5. This verse may be interpreted to mean a wise man was Boaz. If you take the letters of Vav and Ayin and turn them around, you have the word Boaz instead of steadfast. So when it comes time to say that a wise man was steadfast, or a wise man is steadfast, a wise man was Boaz. So the way that we become wise is to be steadfast in our faith, steadfast in our belief. And the way that we become steadfast is by study. The way that we become steadfast is by keeping our, our attention in the Torah. This is why it's important. It's why I started the Aliyah day. It's important to study the Torah every single day. The Aliyah day is a 30 minutes. It's 30 minutes. We can carve out 30 minutes. If you can't watch live at 9.30 Central Standard Time, Monday through Friday, 10.30 on Yom Rishon, Central Standard Time, then it's on podcast. You can listen to it. But you take 30 minutes, at least 30 minutes to study Torah. Why? Because that's how we stay steadfast. Ruth pleads for redemption and going back to Ma'am Loez. In uh, page 102 of Ma'am Loez's book, she pleads for redemption. Actually, it's page 100, I'm sorry. Boaz asked her, who are you? She said, I'm Ruth, your handmaiden. He said, spread your wings, the corner of your cloak over your handmaiden, for you are a redeemer. After identifying herself as Ruth, he remind, she reminded Boaz of their conversation in the field. I am not even like one of your maidservants, she said. And he corrected her and said, you're not of the maidservants, but of the matriarchs. He recognized in her back then that you're like, you're like Rachel and Leah and Sarah and Rebecca. He recognized that level. And maybe that's why Boaz didn't think himself worthy of her affection. Perhaps that's why he was thinking that I, who am I to marry Sarah? Who am I to marry Rebecca? Rachel, Leah, who am I? And that's just who God uses, that humble person. That person who comes in and says, I didn't grow up in a Jewish home. I have no idea what I'm doing here. Those are the people that God uses. The people that go back to their fishing nets and think, who am I? I'm just a fisherman. That person who's collecting, he's a tax collector, and he's a Levite on top of that, being a tax collector. The sages say that when you went to a village in ancient Israel and the IRS approached you. <laughs> no, honestly, they said when you went to a village in Israel and a tax collector approached you, they said it was like being mauled by a bear. And here you have Matthew, a Levite, he is supposed to be teaching Torah. He's supposed to be a rabbi to these people. And instead, he's working for Rome, robbing them. And the, and the way that tax collectors would make their living 
is they would collect the tax and then they would add substantial percentage on top. So they would take the tax from you plus their percentage. So Matthew the levy was mauling people like bears in his villages. And Yeshua walked up to him and said, follow me. Are you kidding me? Me? But Matthew was that pearl of great price. He saw, as a story I read last week, if someone has many, many sins, how, how great is their righteousness once they make teshuva? It says, you are not like the maidservants, but you're like the matriarchs. And he had informed her that she was permitted to marry a Jew and praised her for seeking refuge beneath God's wings. So she says to him, after remembering that conversation, she says, you know, you said to me that I was to be praised for taking refuge under God's wings. But she says, God's wings are the righteous who merit to protect the world. Grant me, therefore, refuge beneath your wings. Did y'all catch that? Ruth just explained to Boaz that the wings of God come from the Redeemer. This is why Yeshua said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to gather you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under his wings. This is why he said that. This goes all the way back to the concept of Ruth, that Ruth said to the Redeemer, to come under your wings is to come under the wings of God. So bring me in. Ma'am Loez writes this and says, Ruth had lain at his feet that night like a baby bird without a nest. Let me read that again because y'all are asleep. <laughs> Ruth had lain at his feet that night like a baby bird without a nest or a mother's wing to shelter it. Didn't Yeshua say that the Son of Man, the birds have nests and the fox have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Ruth, as we've said, there's so many layers to Scripture. Ruth here is a type of Messiah. She's laying there waiting. You could say in the one hand, Boaz is the Redeemer, and then in this we flip, and now we say she's the Messiah, and Boaz is taking her in. So many layers. I have a, uh, one more insight from Ma'am Loez here. Ruth was grafted in. Now this is going to answer, and I want you to listen very carefully. Very, 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 extremely, extraordinarily carefully. People have been taught that Gentiles are grafted in, but they have not been taught that cor correctly. And as a result, it's led to much confusion. It's led to an unprecedented anti-Semitism. You know, we say that anti-Semitism is in the church world. Historically, that's been true. But if you actually pay attention, some of the most anti-Semitic groups ex extant today are Messianics and Hebrew roots. It's horrible, y'all. 
I mean, I feel safer at First Baptist, you're going to be honest, than I would at some of these other groups. And by safer, I don't mean that somebody's going to see. I don't mean that somebody's going to shoot me. They ain't going to shoot me. But anti. But anti-Semitism doesn't mean that you send people to the gas chamber. See, people say, I'm not an anti-Semite. I love Israel. I would never do what Hitler did. Why, why, whoa, why are we going to a number 10? <laughs> why are we going to a number? Like, you're already at the gas chamber. What are you talking about? <laughs> there, friends, there's a lot more anti-Semitism between number 1 and number 10. Okay. I love Israel, but I don't want to be a Jew. That's an anti-Semitic statement. You know why? Because you're God, you're Messiah, your scriptures are Jewish. I don't want to be a Jew, I just want to live with them. But I don't want to be one of them. Why not? Think about it. I don't want to belabor that point. But it's created a lot of anti-Semitism. Okay? Uh, you cannot graft in a Gentile. And the Gentile remain a Gentile. Right? Amen? Amen. Hallelujah? Hallelujah? Okay. <laughs> I apologize for my cold, y'all. This is driving me crazy. It's all right, though. I'm not, I'm not whining. Uh. Ruth had feared that Boaz would curse her for approaching him at night on the threshing floor. It's a, good, it's a good assumption. You know, he's a holy man, righteous man, and she's being a little coy, enticing him. It's not right. That's what I told my wife on a wedding day. It's ain't right what you did. <laughs> but one who trusts in the Lord is raised high, it says Proverbs 29, 25. And God inspired Boaz to bless her instead. Already you are blessed of God, he said, including, included in the blessing of Abraham. Now listen to this. God had said to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12, 3. And our sages interpret the word blessed as grafted, drawing upon the cognate mem, Beit, Reish, Yod, Kof, Sophie. Thus, the blessing is a reference to all the righteous converts who would be grafted to the tree of Israel. That's what it means. So when people say, well, it says in the scriptures that everybody's going to be blessed through you, just understand that from the sage's point of view, that meant that there were nations, i.e. converts, who would be grafted into the tree of Israel and thereby become Israel. See, when you graft a, when you take a wild olive branch and you graft it into a cultivated olive tree, after a period of time, you will not be able to tell the difference between that branch and the other branches. It's going to produce the same kind of fruit. It's going to look like the other branches. It's going to be receiving the sap from 
the root like the, all the other branches. And the sages even took it a step further. They were just talking about agriculturally. They are saying, look, let's say that you have a tree that's three years old and you have a branch from a wild tree that's, say, six years old. So you put the wild branch, you graft it onto the three-year-old tree. Is the tree now six years old or is the branch three years old? Because that's an important question, isn't it? Because you're not allowed to eat the fruit of the tree until the fifth year. So if the tree and now the branch are three years old, then the fruit, including the fruit of the, including the, fruit of the grafted-in branch, is forbidden for another couple of years. Whereas before you grafted in that wild branch, the fruit was permitted. Now, if you graft in that branch and it's six years old, then you make all the other fruit now automatically six-year-old. So the, here's the real question. Is the tree now a wild tree? Or is it a cultivated tree with the branch? Right. Okay, so stick with me here. This is all logical. Follow the bouncing ball. Remember the old shows? <laughs> this is how sages think. So, theologically, we've been taught that if you take the wild olive branch and graft it into the cultivated tree, the cultivated tree becomes now a wild tree and it's now a six-year-old law. But the sages said, nope. When you take that wild tree branch and graft it into the cultivated tree, now the branch becomes cultivated and three years old. It takes upon itself the law of the tree, not the reverse. So if you're saying to yourself, I've been grafted in, then what you are saying, if you believe in a Jewish God, a Jewish Messiah, and Jewish scriptures, you have taken upon yourself the law of the tree. And if you say, well, I'm grafted in, but I don't have to follow those laws, then you may be grafted in, but you might want to check what tree you're grafted onto. Because it may not be the tree of life. That's right. He praised her, it says, one more thing here. It says, he praised her for making a habit of kindness, which began with providing shrouds for a husband. She had to bury that old man first, and that was the first act of kindness. As it says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the deceased. So I want you to see this, parallel. We got, I got one more story. You got time for one more story after this? Okay. I'm going to try to get through it with all this sniffling. <laughs> Sorry. It drives my wife crazy when I do that. Sorry. <laughs> so I want you to understand something. Her first act of kindness was providing shrouds to her former husband. The first act of kindness was burying that dead man. I've said before that a dead man has no conditions. You can't say, well, I want to accept the Messiah and I want to live this life, but I don't want to be a Jew. And I don't want to, I want to, I, I, I'll eat kosher, but biblically kosher, which isn't kosher at all. And I want to, or, or you know what, I'm going to go, I'm going to go true kosher, but I'm going to continue to mix meat and dairy. No, see, a dead man has no conditions. It. That's the thing. 
And so he says, listen to this. He says, your second act of kindness was embracing Judaism, which in fact was a kindness to your soul. As it says, be your reward complete from the Lord, beneath whose wings you've come to take refuge. So the first act of kindness, I want you to see the picture. The first act of kindness of bearing the old dead man, that was an act of kindness to her physical, her physicality. I'm dying to self. I'm bearing that old man. But when she actually turned the two-part process, see, you can die to self, but you haven't embraced anything yet. You can be set free from Egypt, but you haven't got to Mount Sinai. You can go off to Derek, wander off in the wilderness. I'm free. Are you? Or are you like the scapegoat that's being... So no, no, I'm saying you can go to the temple or you can go to the desert. Which way are you going to go? Because the temple is Sinai. The desert is where Hazatan is. But anyway, so she buried that old man. That was a, that was a kindness to her physical, physicality. But when she turned to embrace Judaism, she did a kindness to her soul. And make no mistake, the religion of, G, uh, of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, is Judaism. Yeshua, it's Judaism. It's not anything else. So you know that, believe that, and trust that, as Mikael would say. All right, I, I want to share this story. It's kind of a long story. We got time, don't we? Yes. <laughs> sleep tonight. Boaz told her, sleep the, sleep the night. It says, sleep tonight, and in the morning... If Tov, that's the name of his brother, if Tov will redeem you, let him redeem. But if not, I will redeem you. That's the context of the story I want you to read, or I want you to listen, or think about, rather. Rabbi Mir, it says, was once sitting and expounding verses of Scripture in a certain base midrash in Tiberias, Israel. And Elisheva, his master, was passing, not Elisheva, excuse me, Elisha, his master, was passing by in the street, riding on a horse on the Sabbath. They said to Rabbi Mir, Behold, Elisha, your master, is passing by in the street. Now, Elisha had become a heretic. He was the master of Rabbi Mir, but he had abandoned Judaism. So he's riding around on his horse on the Sabbath. So Rabbi Mir went out to him, and Elisha said to him, With which subject were you occupied in your studies? And Rabbi Mir responded with the following verse, Hashem blessed Jacob's end. And Elisha said to him, what did you say about it? Rabbi Mir said, I expanded that Hashem blessed Job because God uh, means, or excuse me, that blessed, God blessed Job means that God doubled his previous wealth. Elisha said to him, Rabbi Akiva, your other master, would not say that. Rather, he taught that the correct explanation of the verse is Hashem blessed Job's end means that God blessed uh, means that God Job, J- blessed Job's end in the merit of his beginning and the good deeds that he pr- possessed. Elisha then asked Rabbi Mir, and what else did you say? And Rabbi Mir responded, I expounded the verse, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. And Elisha a- asked him, and what did you say about this verse? Rabbi Mir responded, I explained the verse to mean the following. You may find a person who will purchase merchandise in his youth, and suffer a loss. And then again, you might find somebody who purchased merchandise in his old age and makes a profit through it. 
Alternatively, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. may be interpreted to mean you may find a person who commits wicked deeds in his youth, but in his old age performs good deeds. Alternatively, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. may be interpreted to mean you may find a person who learns Torah in his youth and forgets it, but in his old age he revives it and retains it. Thus is illustrated, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. And Elisha said to him, Rabbi Akiva, your master did not say that. Rather, he taught that the correct explanation of the verse is as follows. The end of the matter is good only when the matter was good from its beginning. Stick with me. Elisha then proceeded to illustrate the explanation, and with myself did the following incident occur. Avuya, my father, was one of the great men of his generation, and when it was time to have my circumcision, he called all the great men and invited them to an upcoming ceremony. And among them he called Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua. And when the guests of the circumcision had eaten and, drink, and, drink and, and, and drunk, some began to sing foolish songs and some began to sing alphabetic acrostics. Rabbi Eliezer said to Rabbi Yehoshua, they are occupied with their activities, but we are not occupied with ours. So they began to learn Torah, and from their Torah learning they went on to learn the books of the prophets, and after that the books of the writings. And the words of the Torah were as joyous as they had been when they were given to Mount Sinai. And a fire was blazing around them, for was the actual presence of the Torah from Mount Sinai, was it not also given in fire? As it states, the Torah of Sinai and the mountain was burning with fire to the heart of heaven, Deuteronomy 4.11. Upon witnessing this awesome sight, Avayu said, since the power of Torah is so great, should this son survive me, I hereby dedicate him to Torah. Elisha concludes his narrative, and because my father's intention was not for the sake of heaven, but rather for its glory, my Torah did not remain with me. So he's saying that my beginning was flawed, and therefore my end is of no, no good. Elisha then asked Rabbi Mir, and what else did he say? And Rabbi Mir replied, I discussed the verse that states, gold and glass cannot approximate it, from Job 28, 17. Elisha asked him, and what did you say about it? And Rabbi Mir told him, gold and glass are allusions to words of Torah, which are as difficult to acquire as gold vessels and as easy to lose as glass. And Elisha said to him, Rabbi Akiva, your master did not say that. Rather, he taught that the correct explanation of the verse is as follows. Just as with vessels of gold and glass, if they break, they do have the possibility to be restored. So to a Torah scholar who has lost his learning may indeed recover it. And the comments to that, by the way, just say that even though it's possible, it takes great effort. At this point, Elisha told Rabbi Mir, go back to your home. And Rabbi Mir asked him why. And Elisha said to him, the Sabbath boundary extends until here. And Rabbi Mir asked him, how do you know this? And Elisha answered, from the hooves of my horse that I've already walked 2,000 amos. And Rabbi Mir said to him, so much wisdom is contained within you, and yet you will not go back. That is, you won't repent. Rabbi Elisha replied to him, it is not within my power to repent. And Rabbi Mir said, why? And Elisha replied to him, I was once riding my horse and passing behind a synagogue on Yom Kippur, which happened to also fall on a Sabbath. And I heard a voice bursting forth saying, return, O wayward sons, return to me and I will return to you, with the exception of Elisha ben Eviyua, for he knew my power and yet rebelled against me. The sages pointed out, by the way, that Elisha misinterpreted that voice of heaven. That the Bat Kol was not saying that he was not able to repent, but rather 
God would not coerce him or not encourage him. There comes a point at which when we turn from the light that God ceases to continue to seek us. But it doesn't mean we can't turn back to him. It just becomes exceptionally harder because now we think we're in the light when in fact we're in the darkness. So the story goes on for the sake of time. I'm not going to I'm not going to read the entire thing, but it says that he abandoned his Torah study because he saw, in his own opinion, that there was no reward in this life for the righteous. It says that he, he once saw someone go up to a tree and steal an egg from a nest while its mother was still in it, came down and lived a, a, a a full life, even though the Torah says if you do that, your life will be short. He saw another righteous person go up and wait until the mother left, and then she, he took the egg. And when he came down, a snake bit him, and he died. And from that, he lost his Torah learning because he said, obviously, the word of God is not true, Hasve Shalom. And so he lost his Torah learning. He did not realize that that verse means that the life that you're going to receive is the life in the world to come. It says, after some days, and this is the conclusion of the story, and I've gone a little bit long here, I apologize, but after some days, Elisha ben Aviyah became ill. And they came and told Rabbi Mir, Elisha, your master is ill. So Rabbi Mir went to Elisha. Rabbi Mir said to him, return, repent. Elisha said to him, is one who repents in such a state as mine accepted? In other words, he's on his deathbed. Can repentance happen for someone like this? And Rabbi Mir answered him with tears in his eyes and said, Is it not written, God reduced man to a pulp, and you say, Repent, O sons of man, which may be interpreted to mean that until the soul is crushed, one may still repent. The word for pulp there, by the way, is considered an acronym for the, the three sins of blood, murder, and, or murder rather, idolatry, and marital uh, adultery. It says, At that time, Elisha Aviyu wept, and he died. And Rabbi Mir was happy, and he said, It appears as though my master departed amid repentance, because the sages say the gates of repentance are never closed to tears. It says, And when they buried Elisha, fire came down from heaven and consumed the grave, and they came and told Rabbi Mir, The grave of your master is burned. So Rabbi Mir went out and spread his garment over the burning grave and smothered the fire. And Rabbi Mir said to Elisha, whispering into the grave, sleep the night. This is from our verse from Ruth. Sleep the night, meaning sleep in this world, which is entirely night. Then in the morning, if Tov, which is God, which Tov means good. This is why Yeshua said, why do you call me good when there's only one who's good, and that's God. Rabbi Mir said, in the morning, if Tov will redeem you, let him redeem you. But if not, I will redeem you meaning that he would live his entire life a righteous man in the merit of the Torah that he learned from Elisheva, or Elisha in order to show heaven not to judge Elisha unfavorably, for he did good in this world by leaving me, his Talmud, to teach the world Torah. And they said, they asked Rabbi Mir, our master in the world to come, if they should ask you, who do you desire to bring you the world to come, the news of the world to come? Who would you say, your father or your master? Rabbi Mir replied, first my father and then my master. 
And they asked him, and they will listen to you? Rabbi Meir told him, Is there not a Mishnah? We may save the container of a scroll of Scripture together with the scroll and the container of a tefillin together with the tefillin. Shabbos 116b. Similarly, in other words, though the container of the Torah scroll is saved in the merit of the Torah scroll it contains. And the tefillin box is saved in the merit of the Torah scroll it contained. Similarly, we may say that Elisheva will be saved in the merit of his Torah. We're saved, my friends, in the merit of Torah. And I wanted to read that story for you because just like Boaz told Ruth, lay here at my feet and sleep tonight. Can you save someone from Moab? Can you save someone from abomination? And the answer is that anybody can be saved. Anybody can make tshuva. And when God finds that pearl of great price, which is you, he'll sell everything he's got to buy it back. But what do we know? What do we know?